Welcome back to Stream Again, the TV and streaming podcast that you are listening to right now. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined, as always, by Diane Nora. Hello, Diane. Hi, Chris. Great to see you. Great to see you. We're on a, a, a summer schedule meeting up just to, to shoot the breeze about the streaming universe when we can. And that means a lot has happened since the last time we've talked. I, we are, later this episode, going to discuss the new season of Black Mirror on Netflix, which is exciting for me because Diane had never seen Black Mirror before this very event in her life. I hadn't, and I must say, it did seem awfully dark, though, compared to the news in the streaming universe, perhaps not so dark. And honestly, I thought that was kind of an upbeat episode, but we'll get to it later. (laughs) First, we have so much to get to, including uh, right away some follow-up from the last time we spoke. I'm sure this one, if you can remember our last episode, will not be a surprise. This is CNN. Because uh, if you, you hop in your memory cart and ride down the mind tracks of uh, remembrance deep, deep into the uh, abyss that was early June of 2023, you might remember that we talked about a rather explosive profile of then-CNN chief Chris Licht, who, who well, you know, we discussed how, how bad would this be for his career. We, we had some concerns that maybe this would be really, really bad for his career, but surely David Zasloff wouldn't fire him in the 72 hours it took for us to edit and release the episode. Oh, sweet summer children, were we? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oops. Whoops. I will say for that one, uh, we got it wrong. And uh, so did Chris Licht. He's fired. And uh, not much else has really come out since they're, they're looking for a new permanent chief. And uh, that is all the brain energy I want to expend on cable news uh, this episode. How do you feel, Diane? Yeah, I mean, until we know more, it would just be conjecture and <laughs> our track record on <laughs> CNN's conjecture. Better we just... It's almost it. as bad as CNN's. <laughs> Ooh... But, you know, that's not the only follow-up we have to talk about because there is the looming news of a potential uh, SAG-AFTRA strike, a, a uh, actor strike. And uh, this just goes together with the CNN follow-up because technically by the time this episode comes out, there may no longer be any concern about a SAG-AFTRA strike. They could strike a deal. Uh, it's all of like three days from now. And honestly, I'm afraid to say anything, Diane. I know. I am on tenterhooks. Uh The only thing I'd say is if the actors do strike, uh, that could be really an industry shutdown in a way that the writer strike has shut down many shows. We've discussed some of them here uh, and also some films, but there are there's still TV being made right now without actors. Basically, we're talking about a full work stoppage. Or we're talking about the plot of the season six premiere of Black Mirror, which we will get to later this episode. Just all news filters back to this one specific episode of Black Mirror that we happened to watch this week. I promise it'll all come full circle later. Uh, But that means let's take a moment to just continue rifling through the drawer of follow-up in front of me uh, with a what what I'll call a, a collection of things about our good friends at Wabro Disco. Because I, I just have like a, a gaggle of David Zaslav adjacent headlines. Can you help me make some sense of this, Diane? I'm going to start with, um, is Zaz going to kill Turner classic movies? And why would he do this to my mom? 
your mom, my dad, it's a rough day for parents. Uh, and Steven Spielberg, apparently. And Steven Spielberg is also upset. I mean, I'm upset. I love some TCM. I, you know, he has said that he's not going to completely destroy <laughs> TCM. He has Just said a that it, destroy it. That it is of great value to the company, but uh, it really looks like we're headed in that direction. You're telling me that the massive library of classic Warner Brothers content is somehow valuable to Warner Brothers Discovery. The wild idea. Allegedly. I, I am allegedly. I am not a hundred percent convinced that that is what Warner Brothers Discovery thinks. Because I, I also have a related headline here. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is reportedly looking to sell half of the Warner Brothers movie music catalog, which includes things like Casablanca's soundtrack and Purple Rain. Do, do they just not want to be Warner Brothers Discovery? Do they actually want to like sell shoes? I mean, it kind of seems like it. If by shoes, you mean like a show where Zoe Deschanel fixes shoes or something yeah, like that? It, yeah. You know, or like, like I was I was watching the Righteous Gemstones on Max uh, last weekend, and the ad mm -hmm. leading into the Righteous Gemstones was for some kind of show where Robert Downey Jr. makes fast cars, but he doesn't make them; he just spends money on. So he's not really doing much except being rich, and the cars are good for the planet, or or they're EVs. I I I was like, wait, is is this an H? show and then i went no no this is a, a a disco side of the equation show no there was a great hbo show being produced by the downies and it was perry mason and it got canceled i'm, oh. I'm still bitter i'm so sorry after a, a good second season too i'm told it was in my back yeah, catalog yeah. and it's just falling further and further down i'm sorry it's a frightening time because if you do have a list of shows to watch, you never know when they might be disappearing. Just, you might not be able to watch them. You think, oh, they'll cancel it. I'll get to it later. No longer a guarantee. But before we talk about the latest shows to just be Thanos snapped out of existence, uh, you know, let's continue down my rabbit hole of Warner Brothers headlines because uh, this one, I'm going to just uh, read you what I wrote. In a story that feels ripped from season three of the other two, Warner Brothers has signed a deal to use an AI project management system that will, quote, and this is now a quote from The Hollywood Reporter, leverage the system's comprehensive data and predictive analytics to guide decision making at the green light stage. End horrifying quote. While that does horrify me, it does make more sense for, for me that the jobs that they'd be replacing with AI are executives, essentially, right? Yes. Like the, Bring on the, the decision makers. Uh, you know, if someone has to go to the firing squad, no, there are many wonderful executives who do really important work and make television happen. There is also David Zaslav. But uh, I think that, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the Netflix algorithm you know, like something that we'd address in sort of shady terms, but we're not exactly sure precisely what it would be doing other than determining if a show is going to be a success on the platform. 
Yeah. And, and you know, the article goes on to explain a bit more about, like, what literally this will do, why Warner Brothers mm. is paying a, a company for this software. Uh, and, that, that you know, it, the quote that is, again, kind of horrifying says that the integrated online platform can assess the value of a star in any territory. Again, just the value of a star. Uh, which is a real thing you discuss in the industry. But again, the computer is now just determining the value of you as a star. And then how much a film is expected to make in theaters and other ancillary streams. And and that part makes plenty of sense to me. It's essentially a glorified calculator, which is what most right. algorithms are. So, it, you know, in a way, it's a giant Excel document that's churning out predictions about whether shows and movies are going to be successful and to what extent financially so you can budget appropriately, which is deeply boring. At the same, in kind of a refreshing way. If that's all it is, it's wonderfully boring. And I agree. Let's let some of the people from the CPA department uh, get replaced by some software, in addition to the writers who are already going to get replaced by some software. And again, later in this episode, will Selma Hayek be replaced by some software? You just have to keep listening to find out. The only thing I'd say about this is it seems like perhaps uh, a va- valuable piece of IP to have developed this kind of software uh, to have this technology in your back pocket. So if you were interested in, say, selling Warner Brothers Discovery for parts (laughs) in the next five years, Uh having this, uh, you know, IP might not be such a bad thing. No, no. Having a really good way to calculate the value of the individual parts you're selling off and the stars within them. Yeah, okay. That's a that boy. How much is Mike White worth in like you can? A lot, I think. Yeah, and having a system that can tell you specifically how much uh must feel great. Be... Must feel I can great. just tell you though, Mike White is priceless. So true. Oh, couldn't have said it better myself. And that uh, is where we should probably end our round robin of David Zaslov's Warner Brothers Discovery. Tell your friends. Uh, But you know, that isn't the only branded news segment I wanted to bring to you this week, Diane, uh, because there is uh, so much other streaming news to get to, and it, it runs across the gamut of television and streaming media stories. So I have decided to just uh, decree this, our first ever Wheel of News. It's a news segment, but with some jazzy sounds. And we begin the Wheel of News this week with Wheel of Fortune, the inspiration for Wheel of News. Because, of course, uh, Pat Sajak has announced that he is retiring from Wheel of Fortune, um, which, in a way, I'm so happy for him. I'm not just in a way happy for him, I'm happy for him. But in a way, I have to think, as one of those longtime game show hosts, there are only two ways out. In a coffin or with an early retirement. And I'm glad to see one of them choose the early retirement. Yes, uh, I don't have the love of Pat Sajak that I had of, say, an Alex Trebek. Well, no, nobody does. Another reason Pat Sajak has to choose the early retirement, because his in memoriam is not going to be Pat, just, it's not going to be Alex Trebek. No, no, it's not. Though I do adore Vanna White. Yes, and honestly, so, there's someone who seems like she's just going to ride it out. And, and I, I would put her in Trebek-level uh, national honors. Like, flags at half-mast, full salute. I agree, though. I know she's been negotiating for more money. So uh, give Vanna what she wants, you monsters. 
Yes, yes. And won't Vanna be fun with the new host of Wheel of Fortune? None other than a Ryan Seacrest type. Specifically Ryan Seacrest. Sure. All right. Well, you know what I got excited for, though, Diane, was actually the announcement of who will host British Wheel of Fortune, which now will be canonically my favorite Wheel of Fortune. Who? Graham Norton. Oh, he's delightful. Oh, I'm so glad I get to be the one to break this news to you. Aren't you thrilled? I heard about Ryan. I didn't hear about Graham. Wait, why can't he work here? Well, you know, tough, tough immigration laws. We we have to have our own national uh, Wheel of Fortune host for some reason. What what I don't know the answer to is who was hosting British Wheel of Fortune before this? Was there a contract that said, well, when Pat Sajak leaves, we're taking you in a shed out back? I don't know and don't care to find out. I wish them well. I hope it's a, a cushy retirement. I do too, and that means it's time to spin the wheel of news. And that lands us with our friends at Netflix. Netflix uh, is uh, always experimenting with new ways to confuse my parents when they ask uh, why we pay so much for Netflix and also, have I been kicked off yet? Answer is, no, not yet. Uh, Netflix is experimenting with dropping one of their tiers in Canada right now. And specifically, I think this is a sign of where things might be going uh, with many streamers. They're looking to get rid of the cheapest ad-free tier. And so that means your choice in, in Canada is the, you know, very cheap, so to speak, uh, plan with ads, or you have to bump up to, I believe it's fifteen uh, fifty a month for their middle standard plan. Like the middle standard plan is basically what I'm on with my family. It's the one that does not include 4K, so sad. Uh, but it does let you have multiple streams in multiple locations for now. Um, and, and the cheaper one is the one a lot of single people are on who don't want ads. It's the one that a lot of people already had if they were paying for their own Netflix and not mooching off of someone else. I think both our reactions to this story were the same, being already. Yeah. I can't believe they already know it's not working. Uh, or again, really, I, like, they already know that the ad revenue is worth so much more that they would rather you sign up for that plan. Right. They don't want to let new people onto that, like, roughly $10 a month, depending on, you know, the, the country and the currency, ad-free plan. Because they can make more money off of showing you ads at, like, 6 bucks a month. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, and it seems like we will continue to see this probably as a trend across all the streamers um, yes. to be sort of settling between the premium level and then maybe, uh, you know, the more affordable level. And some of these middle tiers might start to go away. I believe uh, that is a prophetic, prophetic prediction, Diane, because we're about to spiel, we're about to spin the wheel of news. And we're already at another story about removing a popular, low-cost, ad-free streaming tier. Look at that. It's like spinning the, the bankrupt twice in a row. Oh, no. What are the odds? And this time, it's at Paramount+. Plus, and I literally had a friend text me about this 20 minutes before we started recording. He wanted to know what happened to his $9.99 Paramount Plus tier. Uh, he is being forced, forced at gunpoint by the, the lords at Paramount to get Showtime, because they're eliminating the $9.99 a month uh, Paramount Plus with no ads, and they're replacing it with what you basically already had the option to do, which was bundle Showtime for a couple bucks more. But as of uh, June 27th uh, this week, 
uh, Showtime is now part, fully part of Paramount Plus instead of being a little upsell. And that means they're just charging you what they used to charge you with the upsell. They, it's a simplification. Uh, and from like a strategy perspective, makes a lot of sense. It was confusing that Showtime was an upsell for only like two bucks more or a standalone service that was like $10 by itself. Like con- confusing. So now, over in Paramount Plus land, you can either do a cheaper plan with ads for $5.99 a month and no Showtime, or you can do a more expensive plan with no ads, but yes, Showtime for $11.99 a month. I would be more inclined to pay that $11.99 a month for Showtime if they hadn't canceled I Love That for you. I would, oh my goodness. Well, why don't we just keep spinning the wheel? Because our next story is why would you even sign up for Paramount Plus with Showtime? Because they just keep eliminating shows from Paramount Plus and Showtime. Uh, This is a series of escalating reveals that are following the exact same playbook that HBO Max, now Max, went through when they Thanos snapped Batgirl and so many other shows out of existence. Uh, Same thing Disney and Hulu just went through. Paramount Plus is now getting their tax windfall for eliminating a variety of admittedly in some cases underperforming shows uh but but the list is long diane it is and this seems like it was slightly different than the max deletions because they announced that they were happening but then they still happen quite quickly so it was almost the same thing in practice i think for the grease rise of the pink ladies show it was gone like 48 hours after yes. the announcement yes last week they announced that uh four shows were uh, in one case was having their renewal rescinded uh but all four were just being wiped from the service in the coming days and they were gone within like 48 hours and then at the beginning of this week they dumped another uh like late monday night press release that revealed the fates of uh i am just gonna read and try to get through this in one coherent breath. Here we go. Paramount Plus has also purged From Cradle to Stage, a docuseries directed by Dave Grohl, anthology thriller Tell Me a Story, docuseries Ghislaine, Partner in Crime, and a whole slew of Nickelodeon series, All In with Cam Newton, Allegra's Widow, Becca's Bunch, Bella and the Bulldogs, Crash Leets, Digby Dragon, The Fresh Beat Band, The Halo Effect, Legendary Doodas, Monsters vs. Aliens, Mutton Stuff, Nikki, Ricky, Dicky, and Dawn, Peter Rabbit, Pig, Goat, Banana, Cricket, Ride, and The Troop. <gasps> Films, fantasy football starring, okay, I'll stop at the movies. That is a long list of, of admittedly, a lot of children's content. Uh, and that is on top of getting rid of Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, which I, I'm not surprised was not successful. However, only just ended its first season three weeks ago. And then also Star Trek Prodigy, the kids-focused Nickelodeon co-pro Star Trek series that is in post-production on season two. And they say they're going to shop some of these around. They really say they're going to shop Prodigy around because the the season is done, basically. But that's rough. It is rough. And for so many of these, it seems like there was no marketing put into them either. So it's like, sure, they're underperforming, but you set them up to fail. Like something like that Dave Grohl show. I'm a millennial who lives with a Gen Xer. Why didn't we get all the ads for that? Right. That would have been on in my apartment, no matter how unenthused I was about it. Like, I, I'm just shocked by this. I, it just it seems like a really rough time for creatives. Yeah. Why and, and, do they even greenlight some of these shows? 
if if they if, why do they follow through why did you put Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies on the service if you already knew that you were gonna not just cancel it but delete it from the service within less than a month of the season ending like uh, uh, it's one thing to air something you know is going to get canceled N networks have done that forever and I, I understand there is a difference now with streaming and the expectation that things stay up that isn't the way things used to be but it does seem very, for lack of a better word, cruel to creators to just put them in a position where you're dragging their show through the mud, so to speak, making it look like such a failure. Well, the Grease show was strange because there was that incident where one of the actors, Jonathan Nieves, had to leave like partially through the show and they used like bad CGI it looks like to superimpose his face on another actor's body, but it looks so bad. And it went viral in a way that I think may have been embarrassing for them because it was embarrassing for me to read secondhand. So I wonder if that's part of that decision. Uh, but that, because something even more like so, Greece, why did you air it if it's so embarrassing? Why didn't you cancel it? Why? why I, I, part of me thinks right. it, there is mercy in turning to that team and going, we still paid you for all this time you put in, but we don't see a viable path forward to air the, the show as it is. Instead of, and then maybe they can shop it around, but this is sort of the kiss of death. What, who who will pick this up? In some ways, this is sort of a modern problem because for, you know, decades of TV, people didn't have physical copies of things. And, you know, people talk about like episodes of The Tonight Show that are lost forever, you know, and some of those are really beloved. Um, and also a lot of less successful mm -hmm. shows that just, you know, never made their way to streaming because of a slew of different reasons. But uh, we've gotten so used to being able to watch what we want to watch and also where we want to watch it that I think as much as this is a blow for creators, it's also really disruptive to audiences. Yeah, I think that's actually really well said. And all of this leads us to like the cherry on top of this shit Sunday, uh, Inside Amy Schumer. I Inside Amy Schumer, the fifth season, the reboot of Inside Amy Schumer, is currently lobbying Emmy voters because this past week was the voting deadline for nominations. They're doing a whole four-year consideration campaign, and you can't watch the show. It's gone from Paramount+. Plus. I mean, imagine you're in the middle of your <laughs> Emmys campaign or awards campaign and you have that happening. It's like, what a vote of no confidence. Yeah, from once, your... once again, it just feels kind of cruel, like a heads up. And maybe there was a heads up and maybe the Amy Schumer team goes, you know what? That is what it is. It doesn't change the fact that we want to lobby the, the Emmy voters and and fair answer in some ways. So, but, you know, we could be assuming that this was done with the with zero human emotion and perhaps there was some like empathy involved, but it doesn't look good. No, I could see that one maybe finding a home somewhere else. Yeah. I could see Amy inside Amy Schumer possibly being like a Netflix. The thing is, you know, you also have to remember, you know, we don't know the, the deals and the contracts behind the scenes here. Right. They could have fed Amy Schumer into the Warner Brothers. Uh, how much am I worth algorithm and found out that Amy Schumer is actually worth more than they're willing to pay. It might be that they let her go because it's too expensive to keep Amy Schumer and she will land on her feet just fine somewhere else with some streamer that has, you know, deeper pockets. 
It's very possible. We can hope. We can hope. Because then maybe there's also a future for shows like I Love That For You and the rest of the annihilated Showtime slate, which, just to remind you, Showtime already this year got rid of the back catalogs of uh, Kidding, Super Pumped, American Gigolo, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which also had its renewal tossed out. So, great, you can sign up for the new Paramount Plus with Showtime service and whatever's left there. I would love to see some data on once the dust has settled on all of these services doing their purges um, to see how many of the shows that got cold end up being, you know, uh, shows that were created by people of color, shows that were like led by women, because it feels like from the announcements, there's a disproportionate number of those shows, but I don't know if that's just my perception. It very well could be. Um, I, I really hope that there is some sort of uh, larger analytic review once we see, you know, once sort of this chapter of the streaming purge has ended. Yeah, if you uh, work for Vox Media and want to write that <laughs> 3,000 word essay for Vox.com, we'll read it and talk about it here on this podcast. Yeah. I might oh. even share it on Twitter. Uh, we'll if see. If it still exists. Yeah, you know, well, that, that you're making a lot of assumptions that we'll have these places to share these links about shows that may not even exist. But you know, those aren't the only dramatic, dystopian, perhaps science fiction fueled upheavals in the streaming universe. We are going to talk in a moment about a show that encaptures, uh, encapsulates all of that and has since its very beginning because uh, Black Mirror which originally pre premiered, like, I'm going to say 58 years ago, when George Bush, probably the first one, was president. And uh, I'm going to assume we all drove around in uh, those Yugoslavian cars that they made in the Soviet Union. That's how long Black Mirror has been on TV. And Diane has never seen it until now. So I made Diane watch not just the season premiere of season six, now streaming on Netflix, Joan is Awful, we are going to discuss. Is Joan Awful? Uh, I also made her watch the very first episode of Black Mirror ever, uh, the National Anthem. And that one, back from when it aired on the BBC, still available on Netflix, if, it's, if you've somehow never seen the OG Black Mirror, I, I highly recommend. We're going to discuss, I think, kind of how those two episodes in particular bookend a lot of the upheaval in streaming and how we consume media over the last, essentially, decade. Uh, but we're going to discuss all that within a, a discussion of Black Mirror the show. And I am curious, listener, if you are like Diane and you've never, ever seen Black Mirror, perhaps not even now, listen in and tell us at the end of this, does Black Mirror sound like something any rational person would actually want to watch? Because as a longtime Black Mirror viewer, I was stunned that Diane had never seen an episode. And I want to know, am I the problem? Is it me? Yes, Black Mirror originally premiered on the BBC in 2011. I remember it as the era when all of a sudden BBC prestige dramas were big uh, in the West, and partly, largely, I think, because Netflix was streaming some of them. This was the era of Sherlock Ascendant. Do you remember that, that heady, buzzy time? Oh, I do. Yeah. I think uh, Black Mirror is better than Sherlock. Yeah. You know, I, I was resisting taking the cheap dig at Sherlock, but I was going to say that, that that's, those timelines diverged in a really specific way where one of the shows is still watchable. Oh, oh. Well, yeah. 
Oh, but hey, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman did okay for themselves. Yeah, I'm not I too think worried. they'll be all right. Uh, uh-huh. But you know, in in much a way that the uh, original like season uh, of Sherlock, uh, when that hit in 2010, was really exciting because each episode was kind of its own little case, uh, its own little mystery. Black Mirror's big selling point was that it's basically the Twilight Zone reimagined. Each episode is a completely contained little anthology story. There there are some little thematic elements that recur, uh, even in Joan is Awful, the premiere of season six, now streaming on Netflix. There's a string of music, some people in the background and images where if you are a devotee, you see the little uh, nods, the Easter eggs, but you don't need any of that because none of that's relevant to the story or the plot. I did note that they referenced the same fictional TV show uh, in both episodes that I saw. Uh, the season, the pilot, and the season six premiere, which made me happy. Yeah, the the, the little things they exist like that in the universe. Do yeah, they they do kind of touch each other, even when they don't offer any additional, uh, you know, uh, insight into the the narrative or the world. They do give you this sense as a viewer of this kind of more cohesive vision or or bigger experience, which I think is part of what sets Black Mirror apart from, let's say, the doomed and uh, no longer available on Paramount Plus because it was pulled reboot of the Twilight Zone, uh, which uh, was on a Paramount Plus a couple of years ago, originally CBS All Access, and I did watch some of those uh, as somebody who is a fan of Black Mirror, which is obviously a riff on the Twilight Zone, but those Twilight Zone episodes, not a single one of them hit the way any individual episode of Black Mirror does, and none of them had that little sprinkling of um, kind of uh, a, a mystery of what connects everything and there is no connection of everything that the mystery is it's just a vibe it's just a feeling it's just a nod to that show referenced in the the original pilot or that song from 15 million credits you know that's all you need to feel that little bit of elevation that takes the work from being good to being special it does have the same uh creator and showrunner for all six series or seasons um charlie brooker and you can really see like um i think an evolution but also a continuity of of his uh vision here it was interesting to watch this in a moment where i feel like around the writers guild negotiations there are a lot of um conversations being had about sort of auteurs and how they work and run a room and um when that can be like Uh, fruitful for creativity to have a really strong singular voice and uh, how they incorporate writers in the room. So so this uh, choosing this show right now felt uh, like it was part of a bigger conversation and in an exciting way. Yeah, and, and ironically, the season premiere of season six, Joan is Awful, is a direct dig at Netflix and at mm. AI in particular being used to produce uh, shows and art at an alarmingly fast pace. Uh, and and all of that written months ago, ye- perhaps years ago, but comes out right now when the timing could not make the themes more obviously apparent. And that uh, that just goes to show that these are concerns and anxieties that uh, creators and writers have had for a while now. And it just so happens that AI is a buzzy thing in pop culture this year. So it's hitting with a new sense of urgency or relevance. But, you know, so much of this is just lucky timing in some ways that Joan is awful is an episode about a woman named Joan 
Stone, played by Annie Murphy, who has like a normalish kind of HR-like job, and then goes home to watch TV with her uh, fiance on Streamberry. And on Streamberry that night is a new series called Joan is Awful about a woman who looks exactly like Joan with a job just like Joan's and a fiance just like Joan's, who is a relatively normal person, but the show frames and highlights all of the bad things she does during her day, none of which are inexcusably bad, really. They're all just kind of normal parts of her her day dealing with firing an employee, dealing with her ex texting her and whether or not she wants to like go talk to him or not. Like things that are are not that dramatic, but then what what horror it is to see your life on TV like that. And for to know everyone else is seeing those moments as well. Obviously this ruins her relationship with her fiance, her her coworker, she loses her job. And we go on to find out why this happened and how, but I, I just, the uh, the jumping off point there could not be more 2023. I agree, but in some ways, because it was so topical, it didn't feel prescient in the way that the earlier uh, episode that I watched, National Anthem, did. It felt like it was almost behind the pulse because it is happening. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it spirals and it goes to a more extreme place. But a version of that where like we are selling away or, you know, signing away our rights to uh, tech companies with agreements that we don't read. Yes. I mean, th- that's absolutely happening um, yeah. where uh, an, an actor's likeness might be used and they uh, really don't have any legal recourse um, if they don't like the way that it's being used. Yes, that is a world that we're in. So in that sense, it felt like, wow, I wish this had come out last summer because it Mm -hmm. could have been ahead of the conversation. And now it felt a little like, ooh, isn't this spooky? And I was like, well, not that spooky. Sure. It's the Truman Show. Yeah, it's the a tr- movie I watched in the 90s. It, 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 there is the fact that you're like, well, yeah, I've seen this movie. It's the Truman Show. And the twist, the sci-fi, so to speak, twist, you're right, would have felt prescient a year ago. If, if this had come out last summer with the AI boom and the writer's strike this spring, we would have said, oh, my gosh, that episode of Black Mirror from last summer, it predicted all of this. And and to Charlie Brooker's credit, he wrote all of this before all of this happened. So in a right. way, he did predict all of this. But you're you're completely correct. The twist that that unveils itself is that the the show they're creating, the reason it can get done so fast, is because it's all being done by CGI, and that the star of the show, Selma Hayek, played by Selma Hayek, isn't actually Selma Hayek. It's a digital deepfake of Selma Hayek. She just sold her likeness to Streamberry to use as the star of this show. Right. I mean, that does that twist on it was interesting. There just was something that felt a little bit like off the pulse. Yeah, yeah. So for me, the place where the episode got uh, really fun, but also where it kind of tipped into uh, Black Mirror tropes, let's say, is when we discover that actually we're not dealing with the actual Joan. We're dealing with uh, the digital representation of Annie Murphy, who's the actress playing Joan. But we realize, no, we're actually dealing with the digital representation of Annie Murphy. And the real Joan is played by some actress we don't recognize. And in fact, in the real, real world, 
the actual actress Annie Murphy is trying to stop the show Joan is Awful from going forward because she's upset about her digital likeness being used to do the awful things that Joan is doing, which is what's happening with Selma Hayek in, in the fictive world. And Michael Cera shows up, but it's, of course, the digital likeness of Michael Cera. And it tips into this zanier place. And I'm curious, Diane, did that... Did you find that satisfying or fun, or did that kind of feel like a deus ex machina? A little bit of both, but I didn't mind the deus ex machina of it. I mean, that feels appropriate for the genre. The idea that Annie Murphy is like this every woman also felt a little bit off to me because, uh, you know, she's Alexis Rose and she's a great actress, but to me, she's always going to be a little bit Alexis. And uh, she just has a certain glamour to her naturally uh, that, like, she didn't really seem like Joan. When they show the woman who plays Joan, who is, you know, not a super famous actress, uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that seems more like. That looks like, like an ordinary person. person whose ordinary mm-hmm. life would be getting exploited like this. Yeah, yeah. Right and, right. and that she's drawn Annie Murphy in reality into her quest to stop the computer, the quantum computer that is writing all the episodes and producing all the footage so quickly, uh, is... Yeah, it's funny and is is exactly to your point, right for the genre, because you have to wrap up the story in about 60 minutes. There there is no next episode. You need to tie a bow on it. And this one in, in the annals of Black Mirror has one of the more upbeat and optimistic endings in that Joan and uh, the real Annie Murphy are successful, basically, in uh, stopping the show from going forward. They do get arrested for destroying this computer on, you know, Streamberry corporate property. Uh, But then Joan uh, follows her dream of opening a coffee shop. And even though she's, like, in her probation and we see her with an ankle monitor talking to her therapist about house arrest, she's running Joan's coffee. And who stops by for a, a, a latte? Her good friend Annie Murphy, who also seems to be under some sort of house arrest for her roles in this crime, which was just, like, such a nice, uh, like, charming human little moment to remind us that it's not all awful, that, that there is still the option to engage with fellow humans. Oh, yeah. And I think that uh, the idea of Salma Hayek getting together with Annie Murphy to do crimes... Who Netflix get get that algorithm going? I would watch a lot more of that. I would watch it any day, any time. Uh, but I think mm-hmm. you you make a great point that it did not feel as predictive. Let's say as in hindsight, the original series premiere of Black Mirror, the national anthem, which aired in December of 2011. And it it feels dated now in very specific ways. But also, when you take into account when it was, it feels like it predicted, like, the entirety of the last decade of pop culture and politics in some some ways. And also, it's a little scary because you think it, it might still be saying something about the future, even though it is rooted in a bit more dated technology. Also, as someone who lived through 2015 and remembers a specific incident being uh, revealed that happened long in the past of former Prime Minister David Cameron engaging in some really uh, untoward behavior with the corpse of a pig, I was like, wait, so this is going to be something about like 
Oxbridge elites, right? So I was waiting for it to be about that story. And then I realized, no, 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 we didn't know about that till 2015. How did he know this thing would happen with this pig? So I looked it up and Charlie Brooker commented in 2015 when the episode came out being like, I didn't know and I'm even more weirded out. Now, but in a way, it's like the Simpsons syndrome. You know, the Simpsons, uh, the, the trope right. is that they predicted all these things. They predicted the Trump presidency. They predicted the Disney-Fox merger. But it's because that that humor, that specificity of the prediction was so incisive and sharp at the time that it did wind up happening. That the thing that was supposed to be fiction just, well, if it's believable, why can't we believe it happened? Right. That In that sense, the fact that they may be leaning a little more sci-fi in this new series, uh, to me, is a little reassuring, perhaps. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it shouldn't be. Um, you know, that there seems like an element where it, it is spinning a little bit more fantastical. Does that seem right in your assessment or no? Because um, you've seen the full earlier seasons. You know, it, it, you're not wrong comparing these two episodes in that way. But I, mm-hmm. I, I would say, you know, the second episode of season one is one of the most sci-fi episodes of the entire run of the series. So it, it's always kind of oscillated between the two extremes of something that feels really um, natural, but with a darkly predictive element versus things that feel really sci-fi. Oh, boy. Well, I hope that he is less of a Nostradamus than he seems to be. But uh, it's a little concerning, isn't it? It's just a little dark. Uh, You know, if, listener, you don't remember or haven't seen the National Anthem, the original episode, it it essentially is not sci-fi at all. There, there is nothing science fiction or even, you know, technology-wise that didn't exist at the time. You see everybody running around when they're blackberries. It's 2011. Uh, and the plot is that a princess, you know, it's the UK, a princess gets kidnapped, and the, the kidnappers only have one demand. And the demand is a highly specific demand for the prime minister to have sex with a pig on national television, including, like, uh, specific uh, specifications around how the broadcast should be filmed and one of the moments where this does show its age as an episode which i find charming now especially comparing it to jonah's awful is uh, one of the plans that they they run through to try to come up with contingencies uh to save the the princess without making the prime minister do that uh is to have a a porn star do the act with the pig but with a green screen hood on his head so they could graft on the prime minister's head which nowadays actually sounds like an extremely likely scenario that could be achieved with technology that we have on relatively short notice uh but in 2011 when they bring in the vfx guy he's like well it would take us weeks it would be so hard to make it not look fake and there are these things where i'm like "Ooh, what scares me is how the things that we're stopping the the uh, really kind of creepy sci-fi ideas from moving forward in 2011. Uh, if we're going to stay grounded in reality, we can't do that. Well, now we can. And so are, are we just living in the sci-fi version of that episode now is really an upsetting idea. Paramount Plus just did it to Jonathan Nieves on Greece. Literally what I was thinking as you described that story. I was like, sure. Well, you know, Jonah's awful is, uh, you know, assuming the technology will get really, really fast. And at some point, 
it will get really, really fast. And is it a leap in Joan is Awful to say, oh, and like the microphone in your phone is listening to you and that's how we can craft an episode based around the details of your day. Okay, that's still not real. Uh, believe what you will about what your microphone and your phone is doing. But, but okay, there are some leaps there. There's still some leaps there. But if you took the episode from 2011 and you just set it today, there's whole new directions that could go, and none of it would end well. All of it would make everything worse, I'm sure. You know what felt quaint to me about it is they show not just the people involved with the story directly, but also a lot of people consuming this news. Like watching so it much on the it, news. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of them are watching it in public places and gathering together to watch. And I was like, oh, right. Remember when we did that? <laughs> when we would, uh, you know, sit in a pub and watch an event together on live television those days feel fewer and further between but yes they're they're not watching on their phones because it's just before phones could do that you know it it is they're all gathered around the tv in the lobby or the tv at the bar yeah that part feels like yesteryear it does and it does the the end of the episode hinges on that a bit because the kidnapper winds up releasing the princess in the run-up to the airing of the pig sex. Uh, And the reason that nobody notices and the pig sex goes along as planned, unfortunately for the prime minister, uh, unless it's David Cameron, and then maybe fortunately for the prime minister, who's to say? But the reason (laughs) that nobody stops it from happening, nobody notices the princess has been released because they're all inside watching it on TV, which I did find very quaint. It makes for a very beautifully shot sequence at the end uh, because the streets of London are empty everyone's crowded inside uh, but it is something where you're like yeah that's real quaint now everybody would be just out in the middle of public watching on their phones stepping into intersections without looking mm-hmm. I did think also there was a conversation that was being had around uh, the assumed identity of the kidnapper um, and whether like it was someone with ties to Islam or um, some other terror group. And it turns out um, that we were we're just going full spoiler here. It turns out that he's really just some performance artist uh, yeah. is, you know, um, that part to me, it, it felt a little far fetched. Though, I mean, there are plenty of sociopaths in the art world, perhaps not too much. Yeah, you know, in a way, that specificity of it being a performance artist feels a little like mm, that's very coastal elite thinking that a performance artist is going to do the crime. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, what it made me think of, uh, you know, admittedly, in hindsight, looking at this episode as being a bit prophetic, is it makes me think of groups like the Proud Boys and the insurrection uh, on January 6th, where none of those people were terrorists in their minds or in the traditional definition that we would have used in 2011 when discussing terrorism, we were we absolutely would have meant people from a particular part of the world then. And what was kind of prophetic about that episode, I think, is the just the the acknowledgement that no, the the terrorist can be in your own backyard. The terrorist can be somebody you would write off as an inconsequential, like uh, elite, an artist, whatever. Or a trucker and somebody who works down at the laundromat, whatever. I, you know, there, there is there is a, uh, a a terrifying through line in how yeah society would have been really dismissive towards that person as a threat. Interesting to me that for the first for the pilot of the series, uh, he really goes kind of guns blazing with this like, 
audacious plot. I mean, it's perhaps not too far-fetched for David Cameron, but for most people, oh my gosh, I can't believe that actually happens. I kept thinking it would not happen. You know what I mean? Like there'd be something, but it doesn't really flinch. It just goes right up to the thing and past it. Whereas in the season six premiere, you know, it's a little, it does have those big outlandish moments and some that were, you know, pretty ugh, gross. Uh, but at the same time, it, felt uh a little sweeter like you mentioned at the end uh and maybe that says something about the era that we're in now versus then in terms of like entertainment i don't know yeah and and some of that might be the evolution of black mirror over the years because it took a couple of seasons in my my perspective before they had any episodes that really had that sweetness or the the sense of something that might be considered a happy ending, most of the early episodes don't have that. And I think a lot of longtime viewers will point to a particular episode, uh, San Junipero, as one that really stands out for them as, oh, this is the episode of Black Mirror that makes me feel happy at the end. And it's not something that they lean into often, but I do think it's something that has, as the show has had to reinvent itself and evolve and and not, you know, become a drag to watch, one of the things you need to do is offer some hope sometimes. And you need to also offer just that that emotional surprise of, guess what? This one does have a, a happy moment at the end. Or I know it seemed like this was going to end horribly for this character, but actually she made it through okay. And that makes it a bit of a parable instead of... Uh, the national anthem, the, which feels much more like cinema verite, like reality happening and just sort of mm-hmm. and at the end of it. Guess what? He continues to be prime minister and his approval ratings go up like two whole points. And then he's like a year later doing boring prime minister stuff. And most of the public has completely gotten over it. But he hasn't. And neither has his family. Dun, dun, dun. Interesting that you recommended San Junipero because folks have definitely recommended that to me over the years. And I was kind of afraid to jump in with that. Would you say as a as a Black Mirror expert, Chris, would you recommend for folks who haven't seen the show to like start at the beginning, go through an order or can you sort of pop in, pick and choose? I, I know, think is you... there a best season? Ooh, best season. I think you can definitely pop in and pick and choose, but I I do think if you rush to the one episode that everyone's recommended to you, you might be missing the context of why they love that episode. And I think in the case of San Junipero, one of the reasons, it's a beautiful episode and it's a beautiful self-contained story. Uh, It it really hits a lot of wonderful notes around nostalgia and sci-fi and romance. Uh, A great, great piece of work. But part of why everyone, I think, recommends it so much is because it is unlike so many other Black Mirror episodes tonally. And so it feels that much more powerful if you've seen some of Black Mirror. I don't think you have to be a completionist or watch the show through in sequence at all. I I do think if you're looking for some good entry points, the National Anthem is an excellent entry point. It is, I think they picked it as the first episode when they made that first season for a reason. It does go in guns a-blazing, and it really sets a clear tone that is also very accessible if you're not into sci-fi. If the idea of this show going really sci-fi is a bit of a turnoff or you're skeptical of that, that's okay. Uh, the two episodes we happened to watch for this, The National Anthem and Joan is Awful, 
are pretty light on it. Like I said, the National Anthem has no sci-fi to it. And Joan is Awful, it's not so much sci-fi as it is just sort of a, a leap in imagination about what our technology is already doing. What if it did it a bit faster or a bit more... <laughs> terrifying if you're Selma Hayek. Uh, so those are great entry points. And then if you're looking for like a classic episode that everybody loves, San Junipero. If you're looking for more episodes that I think are more indicative of the uh, typical tone of Black Mirror, which is a darker, more, let's say, uh, dystopian tone, uh, the season premiere of season three, Nosedive, excellent episode about our, our kind of obsession with ratings culture and giving everybody five stars uh, in a way uh, was a little prescient at the time in 2016 although also we were already deep into that era but if you put yourself your brain back in 2016 and the rise of like uber and you know five stars give me five stars yelp five stars uh, what if that but your whole life uh, and that one's also great because it's uh, visually very colorful and funny while being dystopian and dark. That they're not all total emotional gut-wrenching drags, but some of them are. And so, you know, if that is a, a turnoff for you, uh, I understand if Black Mirror is not your cup of tea. I would say I didn't find the show enjoyable, but I'm glad that I watched it, if that makes sense. Like, I, I find it interesting enough that I do enjoy thinking about it, even though while I was watching it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this man and this pig, this is happening. Oh, my gosh. Um, whew, yeah, that, that was uh -huh. that, that was a lot. An that excellent was summary of that episode. Uh huh. Featuring <laughs> a beloved British character actor who I used to convince you to watch the episode. And then I made you watch him do that. Uh, the acting overall in this show is very good, I think, across the board. Um, I would like to call on uh, just an industry-wide moratorium on making fun of Salma Hayek's accent and or ability to speak English. She speaks English beautifully, uh, much better than many native speakers. Uh, yeah, uh, cut it out, guys. Salma's great. Not necessary. But you have to remember no. that was happening in the fictive world. They were at fictive level one, as fictional Michael Cera face told us later. So that was actually the stereotype playing out in the show, within the show. Okay, that does make it a little more excusable. Uh, it does seem like something I would see because it's something I've seen so many times. Yeah, and that's where Black Mirror gets you. That's when you're like, oh, that felt a little cheesy. And you're like, because it was supposed to feel a little cheesy. Uh, I will throw out one more recommendation if you're looking for specific ways into this show. Uh, Ooh, in particular, Joan is Awful, when it takes some of its twists, I will avoid saying which, reminds me of the USS Callister, which is another standalone, as they all are standalone episodes. The USS Callister is from season four, again, the season premiere of season four. Uh, that one is about kind of a, a fictional Star Trek world. And so if Star Trek or that kind of sci-fi isn't in for you, if you're more into that space sci-fi, the Mandalorian-style sci-fi, well, guess what? There's an in for you there, too. And once again, an episode that features an amazing cast, including Jesse Plemons. 
It's just the show oh, wow. gets nothing but bangers in terms of casting. And it really ranges from recognizable names like Selma Hayek and Annie Murphy to just really excellent, extremely talented character actors or British actors because it is uh, such a British show, even in the Netflix era. Uh, and so if you just enjoy like well-crafted performances and direction and just a good story, that's also an in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it can be really hard to lock one of those great names into a multi-episode arc or even a multi-season arc of a show um, just because of the schedule demands. So if you can just have them pop in for, you know, an episode and still have, you know, possible like award worthy work, you know, some of the best work of their career, it's like a win win for everyone involved. Absolutely. I literally am looking at the details on the USS Callister again and realize I completely forgot Kristen Milioti, Jimmy Simpson, <laughs> Michaela Cole, all in this episode of television. It is so good. And and that's the, you know, that is also the treat of an anthology show. We've talked about this before with uh, anthologies and you do get a great sampler platter. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I don't think I could binge this show. I think for me, this will have to be a, a drop in, give myself a little black mirror, maybe two episodes and then I'm out. No, I think that's a fair uh, assumption. And some of the episodes are long. There there are episodes that run movie length. Uh, there's a holiday special with John Hamm. Mm, it's going to warm your heart. Oh, I, I do love John Hamm. I I'm do worried, too. But I'm worried about him now dark, that you say that. Dark. Uh, oh, but, goodness. But you know. That is its own kind of enjoyment in these dark streaming times. Uh, listener, I'm curious, what uh, dark visions of the future do you enjoy to watch to, to ward off the dark visions of the present? Uh, tell us, podcast at streamageddon.com. It's that kind of upbeat streaming summer, Diane. Oh, we'll see as long as the content keeps coming. <laughs> if the content keeps coming, when it keeps coming, either way, we will keep Streaming. Okay, you can tell me now. Did you hate that I made you watch this? No, I thought I was going to like 20 minutes in when I was like, this is too dark. I you, can't do it. Did this. you start with uh, season one? I or started season with six? National Anthem. Okay. I, I, I yeah. had already seen it. I started with season six and about 20 minutes into um, Joan is Awful, I was like, oh, no, this is a drag and kind of boring. I think she's going to hate it. Well, I didn't think that I don't think Joan is Awful is as good. No, it's not. It's not. It really takes a while to to pick up the momentum. But then it the, the but it fun. Does get kind, good. Yeah, the fun of where it goes really pays off. Uh, but but okay. I did have this feeling of like, wow, this is slow to get started. And I don't know if I've led you down the correct path the other i'm just so curious about how honest netflix is about what is doing well on their platform because it seems like to me black mirror is not as much in the convo as it's been with other drops but uh at the same time it says it's number three globally yeah i I wonder if maybe it's such a known quantity at this point that netflix doesn't feel like there's much needle moving they can do uh, that it is sure. it, it is successful and it will be as successful as it will be and they really don't have to uh, expend any energy and maybe they've tried in the past and seen that it doesn't move the needle. Possibly. That sounds right. Yeah. Possible. 
Um, well, I promise I will never make you watch one of the interactive specials because I hate them. Oh, okay, great. Yep, you're welcome. You're welcome.